thank you, band and worship team. I thought about moonwalking out on the stage, but I figured I would fall down if I even attempted that. Our band is so good. I mean, they are, I, I came in this morning and they were singing that song. I thought, what in the world? Um, but Danielle always amazes me. And the reason she sang that song is because we end our summer long series today. We've been uh, in, a, in a series all summer long teaching uh, on what we've called bedtime stories. And we've been looking at the greatest stories in the Bible and how they can impact our life. Uh, and today we, we end that series at the very beginning of the Bible. I actually, as, as I laid out the, the series, I laid it out early, really last spring, solidified it early this summer. And I got all the way through the end of the series. And I thought, you know, I, I forgot a message that I think is critically important as we get ready to go back to school. I, you know, I forgot a message that really challenges our people to look at themselves and to dedicate this next school year, that this next school year, or maybe this, you know, this next calendar year from Labor Day to Memorial Day this year, I'm really this year going to live the way that God wants me to live. Now, we have a group of people, uh, I'm sure we have some in here today who are, uh, who are really getting ready to make an impact in our community. My little sister uh, is, a, uh, is a principal at a K through 8 school uh, in Illinois. My older sister's husband, my brother-in-law, uh, is also a principal at a school in kind of north, uh, northern Illinois near Chicago. Uh, and I've been praying for them for the last couple weeks as they get ready to have students back and teachers back, as they get ready to really have influence on a lot of people. I've been praying for them. Uh, and, and I realize that we haven't really prayed over the teachers and the principals in our congregation yet. So if you're an educator, in uh, your in our church, and you're getting ready to this week or next week start school. I'm just going to ask you to stand right now, and I just want as a church for us to pray for these teachers, these principals. Uh, I know we have some in our church. Maybe none of them are here today. Maybe they're just shy. Yeah, if you're an educator, I just want you to stand. If you're going to be having influence um, on students, just stay standing for a minute and uh, stay standing for a minute as you look at these people. Uh, you know, someone who did everything but, but finished their student teaching to get their degree in education. My dad's principal. My mom's a teacher. My little sister's principal. My brother-in-law is a principal. Uh, educators are the most important and most, I believe, underappreciated, probably underprayed for people on the face of the earth, uh, especially in the United States of America. So uh, I'm going to ask you to pray today with me for these folks. And then every day next week, I'm going to ask you to pray for these teachers because they're going to have hordes of students that have been through who knows what this summer that are going to come back into their classroom for the next year. Just pray that they can have great influence on the people that, uh, that they're going to be with. God, I pray for these men and women who are standing, who, uh, Lord, from kindergarten up to senior high, some of them administrators just working with teachers, uh, Lord, they're going to come into great opportunities of influence and great opportunities of challenge as they start this week and as they start this school year. So, Lord, as a parent and as a pastor in this community, I pray not only for the teachers standing here today, but I pray for the teachers in every school in this great city, uh, Lord, that are going to give their next nine months to educate our children and to love our children and to be models for our children. Uh, God, I just pray that you'll bless them, give them wisdom, give them patience as the school year starts. And God, I just pray that you'll use these men and women standing right here to have influence for you wherever you place them and with, uh, with whomever you place with them. Uh, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Uh, thank you so much for, uh, 
for doing what you do. I'm going to ask you if you have your Bible to turn to Genesis chapter 4 today. And our ushers are going to come down the aisle. If, you've, if you forgot your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, every Sunday we open our Bible, we study our Bible. If you need a Bible today, our ushers are coming down the aisle. Just wave at them and they'll give you one. If you don't have a Bible, this is yours. You can keep it. We've given away more than 300 Bibles since our church started uh, about 11 months ago. Uh, and this is how we give them away. People need one at church. Uh, and if you don't have one, just write your name in it. This one's yours. If you just forgot your Bible and you want to have one today as we study God's Word, you can use this one and then just throw it on the uh, throw it on an usher's table when you leave and we'll give it to someone else next week but we're in Genesis chapter 4 today in Genesis chapter 4 there are very few chapters in scripture like Genesis chapter 4 because in Genesis chapter 4 the Bible covers uh, if if we connect it closely to Genesis 5 and 6 Genesis chapter 4 covers a minimum of 2,000 years of human history I want you to think about that. A lot happens in Genesis chapter 4. As a matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 3, the only human beings that we know are named Adam and Eve. They're the only human beings that exist on planet Earth in Genesis chapter 3. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 5, we find out people who have been alive thousands of years. So Genesis chapter 4 is one of those, it's a historical transition chapter uh, that's put in there just to get us from point A to point B. Uh, And in Genesis chapter 4, and and I won't teach through all this, but for instance, in Genesis chapter 4, we learn about the birth, the growth, uh, the birth and the growth of the industrial revolution in the early years of civilization. Uh, We learn about the birth and and growth of society. We learn about spiritual progress. We learn about human civilization. We find out people who begin building cities and people who build factories and people who start listening to music and doing music. We find out people who finally start to worship God. Genesis chapter 4 is thousands of years of history condensed in one chapter. But Genesis chapter 4 is the first place in the Bible that we see the responsibilities that human beings have to one another. Um, Genesis chapter 4 poses a great, great question to humanity, and it's the first time it can ever be posed to humanity. The the question is posed, how responsible are we for other people? Are we responsible at all for other people? As as churches, uh, as Christians, as Americans, as human beings, are we responsible for anybody but ourselves? Are we responsible for anything other than that which happens in our own lives And we find out, according to the Bible, if we start in Genesis chapter 4 and then just read through the rest of the Bible, we find out that really God has mandated us to be responsible for more than ourselves. We're going to study today the story of two brothers. Their names are Cain and Abel. Uh, We're going to learn some interesting things as we study along. But I want to talk to you today uh, about this question. Are, Are we responsible for the welfare of other people? Are we responsible to make sure that other people are taken care of? And here's what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 4. It says, Adam made love to his wife, Eve. Uh, now, if you're married, you should underline that verse uh, and go home and do that. This is not a, a, a message on sex or marriage or anything else, but I find out that sex helps marriage. So uh, you don't have to make a note or anything. But guys, if you're a guy, uh, we find out that the first husband and wife in Scripture had sex with each other. Um, and I'm all for continuing that tradition in Genesis 4.1. Adam made love to his wife, Eve. And she became pregnant. You don't have to do that. Um, that would be one way to grow our church, but I'm not mandating that by, by any means. Um, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant, and she gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I've brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel kept the flocks 
and Cain worked the soil. So Abel was a shepherd and Cain was a farmer. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering because he brought the best, we assume. Uh, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Maybe he brought the leftovers. We don't know. So Cain was angry, and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. And it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and he killed him. You might circle that verse 8 there. That, that's the first sin that a human commits against another human. One brother kills another. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, Cain replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're going to be under a curse and driven from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from its hand. When you work for the ground, it's no longer going to yield its crops for you. You are going to be a restless wonder on all the earth. I want to go back to one question, and this is going to be the focal point of our time together in our Bible study. God asked Cain, where's your brother? And Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Basically, what Cain was asking God is, am I responsible for someone else other than myself? And the answer that the Bible gives us to that question is an answer that, you know, that you have to answer for yourself. And it's an answer that you have to apply for yourself. And it's something that's going to take effort. And it's something that's going to take maybe a change in attitude. And it's something that's going to take becoming aware of where needs are and how you can meet needs. But today we're going to ask that question. And I hope as much as that song rings in your head for the rest of the day, that this question will ring in your head for the rest of the day. Am I my brother's keeper? Are we our brother's keeper? Are we responsible for hurting people? Man, the Bible has a lot to say about that. You know, we ask that question, and, and, and at first, I mean, we live in a big world. If you have a TV, if you have a radio, if you read the newspaper, if you read the news online, um, to, to ask that question, are we, are we responsible for hurting people, is quite overwhelming. Because the truth is, none of us, none of us feel like we can even make a dent in what is going on in the world. You look at just a few weeks ago, what happened in Colorado. You look at just last weekend what happened in, I think it was, Wisconsin. You look at what's going on in our world, and I mean, we, we live in a world where there are lots of hurting people. If, if we get just outside of our neighborhood, and we get into areas in Lee Summit that live well under the poverty line, or if we're to get into areas of downtown Kansas City that live well under the poverty line, or if we're to go to major cities and just stroll around major cities and see people sleeping under bridges and living in parks, or if we're to get to a, a third world country like we were in India, just a, a few months ago, and you're to see hurting people, you think to yourself, there's no way anyone or everyone could pull their resources together to help people. I can't be responsible for hurting people. I can't do anything. There's just too much hurt. There's too much need. I can't do anything, so I'll do nothing. But I think about Mother Teresa's quote, and this was actually given to me by Jill McElyer, who leads the Invisible Girl Project. That we, it's one of the ministries that we support. We're going to India with them uh, again next February. And I asked Jill, they're rescuing infant girls in India. 
Uh, and if you believe the statistics, 50 million baby girls have been killed in the country of India in the last 50 years. Listen to that. 50 million women are missing from that society because when girls are born, they kill them, or if they can get a sonogram and find out they're having a daughter instead of their son, they have an abortion. It's called female infanticide or female gendercide. They're literally just killing off baby girls. So this organization that we work with, that we support, goes in and tries to rescue baby girls. And last year, they rescued 167. And I asked Jill, I said, you know, so so last year, you know, if, if the ratios hold true, last year a million little girls were killed and you rescued 167. How, you know, how do you feel like you're doing anything? And she gave me this Mother Teresa quote. She said, you know, it was Mother Teresa who said, listen, if you can't feed 100 people, feed one. And she said, we can't, we can't save them all, but we, we did save 167. It's just a mindset that I can do something, I need to do something. We're gonna learn today from the Bible I'm responsible to do something. Am I my brother's keeper? As we look at the Bible, we we find out that as Christians, maybe not as Americans, but as Christians that love God and that try to follow God's word, certainly our heart should try to be our brother's keeper. Uh, as, As we look through the Bible, we find first and foremost that the heart of God clearly is to look after hurting people. God's heart throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, and his continuing message through his prophets and to his people was that I see hurting people, and I want to help them. Ultimately, if you read Isaiah chapter 61, and we won't go there today, but Jesus on Jesus' first day of ministry, like if Jesus would have started a church, we started our church September 18, 2011. Uh, that day I preached on James and who James was and the uniqueness of James's life, and then I kind of taught through the book of James early in our church. Jesus' first message to the people was from Isaiah 61. And in Isaiah 61, God tells the prophet Isaiah to tell Israel, hey, here's what the Messiah will do. Here's what the Savior will do for people. And basically, Jesus opened the Bible and said, listen, when the day of the Lord comes, hurting people are going to be helped. And Jesus said, I'm here to do that. I'm here to help hurting people. You know, it's really interesting. Jesus had a cousin. His name was John. We call him John the Baptist because we remember him more by his job than by his name. But John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. Uh, I'm sure they grew up together. They, they did ministry together. John baptized Jesus as kind of a coronation to his public ministry. And then John got thrown in jail. Uh, and when John was in jail, probably awaiting a, a, a certain death, and Jesus was out doing ministry, John began to have doubts about his faith. John began to have doubts about if Jesus was who Jesus said he was. And John had disciples who were bringing him food every day. In those days, they didn't feed you in prison. If somebody didn't bring food to you, you would die. So he had people who were bringing him food. And one day, John pulled his disciples together who were helping him in prison. And he said, listen, 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 listen. I need you to go ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Because, like, I don't want to lose my life in prison if you're not really him. Are you really the Messiah. Like, would you please just tell me, did I get it right? Are you really the Messiah? And look at how Jesus answered that question in Matthew chapter 11. Here's what Jesus said. When John said, are you the real deal? Here's what Jesus said. When John, who was in prison, Matthew 11, starting in verse 2, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, 
The dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. John said, Jesus, are you, re are you really the Messiah? And Jesus answered by saying, listen, tell John that hurting people are radically having their needs met through my life. What people are lacking, I'm bringing to them. Tell John not to fall away. I'm doing what God has sent me to do. You know, I was asking an interesting question two weeks ago. Um, you know, our church is about a year old now, and, and we have two church planning partners who invested in our church before we became a church. They, they give us great coaching. They give us leadership. They oversee our budgets. I mean, they do a lot to help us. Uh, and after a year, we were doing kind of interviews with them. They just wanted to see how we were, if we were healthy, if good things were happening in our church. And this question was, was posed of me by one of the men from our church planning networks, Christian, um, when do you think your church will have reached success? That's the question. When do you think your church will have reached success? Or do you consider your church successful already? I'm like, you know, that, that is an interesting question. And, you know, I don't know. I know there's some people who are, you know, our church has not been right for. It's either too small, it's too big, it's too loud, pastor's too weird. You know, for some people it just it hadn't, it hadn't worked out right. But I started thinking about Jesus being asked this question. It's like, God, when he asked me that question, I'm doing a phone interview. He asked me that question. I thought about how Jesus answered it. And here's what I went in my mind. I thought, you know, have we been successful? And I thought, well, have we, have we helped any hurting people? Have we helped any hurting people? And I just began to catalog in my mind. I began to tell him what we've done. I said, you know, I don't know what success in the eyes of others looks like. But I know that this year, as a church, we bought 40 bicycles for pastors in the Sudan who have to walk 40 miles on foot one way to go do Bible studies in villages. So 40 pastors have a bicycle now and can do ministry every day instead of once a week because of our church. And this year, in 2013, we actually bought two motorcycles because the, the lead pastors of these associate pastors, they actually travel on a 500-mile circuit, and they're used to only hitting villages one time a year, and now they're able to go monthly to every village because we bought them two motorcycles and provided them with Bibles so they could go to these villages in outlying areas. And I said, you know, we've got 10 little girls in India who we, we buy all their food, all their school supplies, all their toothpaste, their toothbrush, their clothes. I mean, everything in their life, every penny of their life we, we pay for. So I know we're supporting them, and, and we invested in a mission center in Romania uh, that they're building because the Romanian orphanages are some of the worst in the world, and, and we were able to give $2,000 to, to help keep that orphanages open as, as they begin to build that. Uh, and we have a principal who's a, a principal over a school in Thailand, Grace International School. Uh, could you imagine if, if any of us were called to the mission field, our first question as parents would be, well, what about my kids? So they've got a school in Thailand where all the missionaries in Southeast Asia, they send their English-speaking children to this school so they can live on the mission field, but so their kids can be educated. And we, we have a teacher that our, that, our, that our church supports. We help pay her salary so she can be over there. And we're building a house in Guatemala uh, that a family will live in, you know, a family who, who's living literally in a hut now. will have a 12-by-12 12 12 cement block home because of our church. And last year, we provided school supplies for 25 students at this school, every pen, every pencil, their notebook, their backpack, their gym clothes, and we're doing it again this year. And, and I started thinking, I said, you know, we stocked the food pantry at this school last year, at this school last year, and anytime they needed anything, they would call us, and we would help them restock that so kids in this school who didn't have enough food to eat would have food to eat. 
and we adopted 30 elementary school students right here in, in Lee Summit, and there's 30 kids in Lee Summit who last year, between September of last year and this year, have eaten every weekend of the year because our church has provided for them food to eat every weekend of the year, and we've had 68 people who have become Christians, and we've had 30 who have rededicated their life spiritually. We've had 36 people baptized, and I ran down that list and said, I don't know what answer you're looking for. And I don't know if our church is big enough or good enough. I, I, here's what I know. I think last year our church achieved success biblically. I think we helped people. I think we did what the Bible says Christians and churches are supposed to do. And man, we plan to do a lot more of it next year than this year. So have we been successful? I don't know. Have we helped hurting people? We have. And we're planning to do more. We've only had 11 months of church but I believe we're biblically successful. You know, God in Isaiah chapter one, God comes down to these, these churches in Israel that are having these great big churches and they got the stained glass and the pipe organs and they have the most elaborate church experience you could have. And God comes to them in Isaiah chapter one and says, I hate watching you have church because all you are is a service. You're not helping anyone, you just have church. And God said, you got to change. And I, in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 17, God says, the multitude of your sacrifices, that's what they would try to do to, to worship God. The multitude of your sacrifices. He said, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, of the fat of fattened animals. I don't have any pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who's asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings your incense is detestable to me. Your new moons, your Sabbath, your convocations. I can't bear your worthless assemblies. God said, I watch y'all get together to have church and I can't stand it. Your new moon feast and your appointed festivals. These are like their old school revivals. He said, I hate them with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread your hands out in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I don't even listen because your hands are full of blood. And then he says this, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. What is right? Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. God says, quit just going to church and help hurting people. Because your Sundays don't impress me. Your service and your speakers and your pipe and your lights and your Michael Jackson, they don't matter if you're not helping hurting people. That's what God says. That's not me. That's what God says. So Cain says, am, am I my brother's keeper? God says, you're darn right you are. If you're, if you're a follower of mine, yes, you're supposed to be helping hurting people. In James chapter 1, James gave this same message to the New Testament church. Isaiah 1, Old Testament church. James 1, New Testament church. James says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Look after orphans and widows in their distress. Keep yourself being, from being polluted by the world. Help hurting people. Grow spiritually. That's good enough for God. That's what God wants you to do. So God's heart is to help hurting people. But, but for us... This can't become just a line item in our budget. Oh, yeah, give them a little money. This has to become an attitude of our heart. And that's number two. Being my brother's keeper has to become an attitude of the heart where we, we actually think about this. We're purposeful in this. We look for ways to do this. We look for ways to engage in this. And our, our heart 
and our mind are constantly thinking of people that we can, that we can help, brothers who are in trouble. You know, Cain's answer was literally perceived as this. So God asked Cain, where's your brother? Here's, here's how Cain answered. Cain's biblical answer was, am I my brother's keeper? Here's what Cain was saying to God. He's not my problem. Where's Abel? I don't know. Abel's not my problem. You know, I believe when God looks across Lee Summit, he sees hurting people. He sees broken marriages. He sees teens that, because of things that teenagers do, are breaking their parents' hearts. He sees school districts in need. I was talking with my neighbors yesterday about the Kansas City, Kansas school district and what's going on down there and just the, the, the difficulty that these kids, kindergarten through 12th grade, are going to have to get good education. I think God sees it and his heart is hurting and he's wondering, who's, who's going to help? And there's a lot of people saying, I don't know. Like, that's not really my problem, God. When we have an attitude of the heart that, hey, I can't help 100, but I can help one, we become more like Jesus wants us to be. You know, unfortunately, I, I kind of have grown up in a church that likes to judge hurting people more than helping them. Is anybody with me on that? Probably those of you who are in the generation under the age of 35. Like, we look at hurting people, and, and we like to talk about why they're like that than what we can do to help them not be like that. It's just easier. It's easier to pass someone on the street who's asking for money. It's easier to think, you know, get a job than to give them a dollar. And you know what? The attitude, the hard attitude of being my brother's keeper is, you know what? I, I can't fix this guy's life, but maybe I can buy him a cup of coffee. I can't do everything. I can do something. If we'll quit letting our minds wonder why hurting people are hurting and instead try to figure out how we can help them, then we might progress forward not only as a country, but goodness, as a church too. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm reading a book right now called Sifted by a pastor by the name of Wayne Cordero. He has a church, um, actually has several churches. I think he has a church on each one of the Hawaiian Islands. Um, I don't know why God didn't call me to start churches on the Hawaiian Islands. Um, but he's got, he's got a bunch of churches in Hawaii. And uh, his mantra early in his church when they had like 10 or 12 people is he said, we're going to live with our hearts and we're going to serve with our hearts. And he said, in the early days of our church, when we were wiping off cafeteria tables, we used to tell our, our people, clean the cafeteria table with your heart. You're not cleaning it with a rag. You're not cleaning it with your hand. You're cleaning this cafeteria table with your heart. We used to have to wash toilets. We'd go into the schools, and the toilets wouldn't be just broken down. They'd be filthy. So we cleaned the toilets before church, and we'd tell people, look, you are not cleaning that toilet with a brush. You're cleaning that toilet with your heart. We would tell our greeters, our parking people, you are not just out there waving at people. You are serving with your heart. And we tried to help people connect their heart to what was going on. You know, our mission statement as a church, we, we say this often, hopefully often enough that it, it kind of sounds familiar in your head, is we want to see people who are far from God become passionate Christians that make a difference in the world. That's what we're all about. That, if you ask how do we judge success, we, we ask three questions. Are we seeing anybody far from God become closer to God? Are people who are Christians growing deeper in their faith? And is anyone helping anyone? If the answer is yes to those three things, we're headed in the right direction as a church. But the heart of our organization are the people in our community who right now are not as close to God as they need to be. Maybe they have zero relationship with God. Maybe they're away from God. But our heart as an organization is to find people who are unchurched or de-churched, away from church, and to have them hear about our church, want to come to our church, and when they come, one time to have one good experience 
that will hopefully allow them to come back and begin their own spiritual journey with God. And we understand that our first touch on the life of anyone who ever walks in our church, we understand there, there are probably some people in our church today, this is your very first time here, and maybe you haven't been in church for a while, and we understand as a church, we are in one end of a rope on your life, playing tug-of-war with Satan, according to Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 6, 12, the Bible says our struggle, the, the struggle of people in the world is not against flesh and blood. That means your struggle's not with your boss, your struggle's not with your job, your struggle's not with the economy, your struggle's not with the president, Congress, the Supreme Court, the Senate. Our struggle is it's not against anyone. It's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We, we, we are in this cosmic battle where Satan is trying to destroy what God made perfect in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And as a church, we understand that on one end of your rope is life trying to suck you back and wear you out and empty you and, and disturb you and distress you and, and depress you and discourage you. And we're on the other end hoping that we can connect you to the light of God, to the life of Jesus, to a church that will love you and hopefully work with you and your teenagers and your kids. And we understand that every Sunday... One of my church planning coaches told me, Christian, every Sunday at your church will be somebody's first experience ever in church and someone's last chance ever at church. Every Sunday, someone will come and it's their very first time that they've ever experienced church and someone will come and they're planning on it being their very last time if God doesn't do something. Every Sunday, you have a first chance and a last chance. You can't miss. It's why we do church the way that we do church. You know, I read a book before we started our church called, um, I think it's called Fusion. That could be the wrong word. Fusion or Activate by Nelson Searcy. Um, and he talked about people who come to a church for the first time make up their minds whether or not they're going to come back within seven minutes of turning off the road that leads to your church. Before they hear the music, before they hear the preaching, someone will decide probably before they hit the doors whether or not they like or don't like a church. That's why we put up all the signs that we put up. That's why we have parking. Listen, our parking lot is four times bigger than the amount of cars that we ever have. Nobody needs to be pointed apart. We wave because we want people to know we're glad that you're here. See, our clock, when they turn off 150 highway, the clock starts on whether or not somebody's going to come back to our church and grow spiritually. It's why we have way too many greeters, and it's almost like going through the gauntlet to get in our church because you have to shake hands with 30 people, and, you know, some of our germaphobes have started slipping in the back door, and, you know, we watch people who wait in the parking lot until they see us, and then they sneak by on the grass. I mean, I know who you are who don't like to shake hands, and that's cool. You don't have to shake all of our hands every Sunday. I get it. But it's why, it's why we do what we do. It's why we serve coffee and donuts because people are more comfortable with something in their hand than, than just walking around and, and not knowing anyone. It's why we have huge signs when you walk in. The first things that people ever want to know when they walk in a church is where's the nursery and where's the bathroom? See, nervous people usually got to pee, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about? And the last thing you want to do is say, hi, I'm John, I'm new here, where's the bathroom? That is an awkward question to ask someone you don't know. So as soon as you walk in, we have signs that say, and the second one is childcare, where's the nursery? So we have signs as soon as you walk in. If you come here to church every Sunday, you don't even recognize them anymore, but you know who does? the person who's given it their first time or last time. They're so thankful that we've provided a place for them that's really easy. You see, we've tried to develop the attitude of a heart that is our brother's keeper. Every Sunday, and I get here at 7 a.m. with our setup team, and every Sunday after everything is set up, I start outside and I walk in as if I'm a new person. 
and I stand at the door. Nobody sees me do this. I don't take anybody with me. I stand at the door. I make sure all the signs are in the right place. Make sure everything's where it needs to be because I know that today will be somebody's first chance and last chance. And man, I don't want to mess that up because my heart is all in. I mean, my heart is all in. And that's, that's where I want to get all of you as a church. Are we our brother's keeper? We sure are. We can't help everyone, but boy, if they're going to show up at our doorstep, we can help them or we can try our hardest to help them. Think about that, seven minutes. I, I, I want to read you just to prove my point. One of the men in our church who became a Christian in, in one of our very first services and was baptized last spring used this in his testimony. Uh, and I pulled these two paragraphs from his testimony. He says, I'm 26 years old. And prior to coming to Journey Church International last fall, listen, I had never been to two consecutive church services in my entire life. There's a lot of people in our community like that. I grew up with a sour taste of what church had to offer. I never knew what it was like to develop an actual relationship with God. Most churchgoers I knew weren't even good people, so I was turned off with the whole idea of organized worship because of hypocrites. Somebody came last week, and they have some friends who had visited our church, and they sent me a note and said, you know, we're from a church. Things didn't work out great. And he said, there are a lot of hurting people who visited your church today. Thank you for blessing us by just allowing us to heal. You see, the heart of the gospel is knowing that today someone is here who is hurting. You might see those three empty chairs right there on the front row. You know why those three chairs are empty? I don't know, but I have a guess. My guess is somebody came today from the nursery and said, we have more kids than help and we need someone to help serve in the nursery. So today, somebody is in here hopefully being healed, being ministered to, whose kid is being watched because three teenagers chose to leave their seats and go rock babies so that some mom today could just rest, heal, get ministered to. That's the heart of, am I my brother's keeper? Anything I need to do. We understand that somebody's first time to a church is like a first date. You remember that first date, don't you? In, in high school, back if you're my age in the late 90s, you ain't going to go on a first date without some chewing gum, right? I mean, just in case, right? I mean, you know what I'm talking about, a little big red. I mean, you know, you, you know what kind of gum it was for you. Put a little cool water on, a little boys to men on the CD player. I mean, that first date, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. French roll those jeans real tight at the bottom. You remember that? Y'all remember that? I mean, first date, first date, first impression. It's got to be good first time. That's how my, <laughs> Danielle's laughing. Danielle's like, I don't even like Big Red. Um, just kidding. Um, that's how my heart is towards every Sunday at our church. It might be somebody's first time. Today is a first date with somebody who's trying to find their way back to God. It's got to be good. Today's got to be good. Every day has got to be good. When we move from a mindset to it's not my problem, to a hard attitude of how can I serve, the only question then becomes the how. Okay, I, like I want to be my brother's keeper. What am I supposed to do? And that leads me to point number three. Being my brother's keeper requires an awareness of needs. It's one thing to say, yeah, I'm available. It's another thing to have somebody well, tell, me, tell me what to do. Tell me how to serve someone. And that's where as we look into Scripture... This, this great question is asked. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40, this won't be on the screen. I'll just talk through it. A teacher of the law went up to Jesus, uh, and they asked Jesus, hey, uh, hey Jesus, what's the greatest, what's like the greatest law that there is? The, uh, the New Testament Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes had broken the Old Testament down into like 600 do's and don'ts. 
Um, and he wanted to know, what, like, which one's the most important? And Jesus said, it's simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. And then he followed and he said, the second's very much like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the scribe asked a great question. So who's my neighbor? Now, love God, got that. Love people, got that. But like, what people? Love your neighbor. Okay, who's my neighbor? So Jesus says, let me tell you a story. In Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, he answers this man's question. Who's my neighbor? Who am I, like, how am I supposed to fulfill this great commandment? But Jesus said, let me tell you a story. On one, uh, on one occasion, I'll wrap the whole thing. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, what's written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and he went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Don't miss here what Jesus is doing. Who's the first guy who, who went by? A priest, a religious person. Jesus is making a point here. A, a religious person happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite. A Levite, like a priest would have been a pastor, a Levite would have been somebody who worked at the church. Jesus is making a point. Another Christian, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan put in here in the blank the nastiest, vilest, most far from God person you know. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, he poured oil on oil and wine, he put the man on his own donkey, he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, he gave him to the innkeeper, and he said, look after him. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Listen, someone who loves their neighbor is somebody who simply will stop and try to meet a need when they recognize it. No one in this room is going to cure the problem of world hunger. No one in this room is going to create fresh water to drink for the tens of millions of people in our world that don't have fresh water to drink. More than 70% of the people in the world have never been on motorized transportation. They walk everywhere. More than half of the world doesn't have shoes. I mean, there are great needs out there, and we hear those, and we think, well, what can I do about it? You can see a need and meet a need. That's having the heart of my brother's keeper. I see a need, and I try to meet a need. That's what it's all about. You know, as, as a church, before we began, we ask ourselves, what does a passionate Christian look like? Because that's our mission statement, right? See people far from God become passionate Christians. What does a passionate Christian look like? What does a passionate Christian do? What, what is going to be our strategy for helping people be what God wants them to be spiritually? And we said, okay, we're, we're just going to have four things. We're going to try to make it real simple. We're going to tell people, if you do these four things, we think you're going to be moving in the right direction at warp speed spiritually. Uh, and, and man, I'm really excited about, as a church, what we're getting ready to do in these four areas. We've planned out our entire second year of ministry. Uh, tonight, I meet with our leadership team, and we're going to spend several hours talking through everything we're going to do in year two. 
next Sunday night, we have what we call our momentum event for those uh, who volunteer in our church and who want kind of the inside scoop of what's going on. I'm going to lay out our entire second year of ministry to all our leaders and volunteers, and then we're going to take communion together, and I'm going to have everyone get on their knees and pray together. That's going to be uh, in two Sunday nights, actually August 26th at the Gamber Center. We'll spend a couple hours together just saying here's everything we're going to do in the second year. And then in September, I'll lay it out to our church. But all of it revolves around four things, what we call the four E's, experience, worship, our, our church service, we, we expect our Sunday morning church service to grow people spiritually, not just teach them, but to grow them. We want people to engage in small groups. Pastor Ryan at the end is going to tell you how you do that. We want people to embrace serving, and we say three places, in the church, in the community, and around the world. And we want people equipped with a spiritual growth plan. Where am I? Where do I need to go? Christian, how do I get there? If we can do those four things for people, I promise you, you'll grow, and you'll grow at warp speed. Experience, engage, embrace, and equip. If you do those four things, you'll grow at mock speed spiritually. But I, I want to hit one specifically today. Embrace serving. Embrace serving. I say to God, I'm available. Whatever you need, I'm available, God. God says, what about Abel? God, Abel's not my problem. What we're saying to God is, what, what do you want me to do with Abel, God? I don't know where he is. Well, I killed him. So you know, maybe an inappropriate context to relay this conversation. But God, whatever, just whatever you want me to do. I want to be my brother's keeper. You need me to, God, whatever you want me to do. You know, when we started our church, we envisioned a church. Here's how I cast the vision when I was talking to people early. I said, I believe that we can build a church where people in Lee Summit, Missouri, can, from one campus in one spot, can make a difference all over the world. They can grow spiritually. They can make a difference in the lives of hurting people. They can make a difference all over the world. Just by being engaged in our church, they can, they can literally, they can be their brother's keeper. They can do what God wants them to do. Case in point, uh, I asked our finance office this week. I said, give me, a, um, give me a list of the kids in our student ministry uh, who have ever given in the offering. And I'm, I'm making a specific point with this. Um, I wasn't looking for a specific kid. I just wanted names because I, I was trying to prove a point. Um, give, me the, give me the list of the kids in our student ministry. only... 30 or so of them, who have given in the offering. And I looked that list over, um, and I saw one of our kids who's given in the offering, you know, not hundreds of dollars, 10 or 12 bucks, who have given in our offering. And I looked at this kid, and I thought, this one kid, um, and by the way, her, her name is Casey. She, you see this little thing? She made this for me. It says PC. That's my youth ministry nickname standing for Pastor Christian. I told him I'm glad my name is not Paul because I'd not want to be PP to all the kids in the, uh, in the youth group. Um, but, but I was looking for a kid, because we have about five kids in our church that serve every Sunday. They serve in the nursery. They get here early. They help with pre-service child care. They do internet. They, just, they serve. They help. Um, we have several who go serve in the community every other Saturday when we do stuff in the community. Um, and I know we have some are grown spiritually, but I needed one who had given in the offering for this, for this reason. As an example to you, that this young gal who's going to be a senior next year, through our church, with what she has given, She's helped build a house in Guatemala and feed orphans in India and support an orphanage in Romania and given uh, transportation to pastors in the Sudan. She's fed hungry kids that go to the school and she's given backpacks and school supplies to kids who go here who don't have any. You see, just by being a part of our church, she has been her brother's keeper all over the world. She has served people in this church. If you have a child in the nursery today, 
She's one of the people who was here at 7 a.m. with our setup team setting it up this morning. She has served you hurting people by being engaged in serving. And she's growing spiritually like crazy. Everyone in this room has the opportunity to be their brother's keeper by being aware, by having a hard attitude of being willing to do it, and by understanding that question of Cain's, am I responsible? That God's answer is yes. If you love me, you are. So here's how I'm going to close our service today. I'm going to close by allowing you, because there's a lot of you like Casey this morning, who you are already your brother's keeper all over the world. But I, as we enter a new school year, I want to allow the, the rest of you to embrace the opportunities that they have. And we're going to do that in just a minute with one of the forms we gave you. But let's pray first and dedicate this time of recommitment, of new commitment, of first commitment to God. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. And Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name today. And Lord, we are aware as we've gone through bedtime stories, we've read some of the greatest stories in the Bible but have never thought to apply them to ourselves. And Lord, there are some people in this room who could tell the story of Cain and Abel but have never asked themselves, am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible? Am I doing anything? And God, I pray that you will allow us to be a church that doesn't just learn Scripture but that acts upon Scripture, that never turns into an Isaiah 1 church that is so impressed with its Sunday service but isn't helping anyone outside of the church ever at any time. God, we want to be the church that you have called us to be. We want to embrace being available and having a hard attitude that, God, whatever you need me to do, I'll do I may not be able to go to Africa. I may not be able to go to India. I may not be able to serve every Sunday of my life. I may not be able to go downtown and serve once a month, but I can do something. And God, that thing that I can do, I will do. God, thank you for the men and women in this church who are their brother's keeper. This year, their money has gone all over the world through what they've invested in our ministry. Their hours show blood, sweat, and tears for hurting people and people who have never gone to church twice in their life to the same church, but they've done that at this church because of how well people have served. And God, I pray that you'll fix our hearts and our minds, our attitudes, and our awareness to be our brother's keeper. We can't change the whole world, but we can change a little bit. And Lord, help us to be responsible and aware of our little bit. We ask these things today in Jesus' name. And everyone said...